2 Corinthians chapter 6. Here the apostle gives an exhortation to bring forth the fruit of the gospel ministry, starting at verse 1. We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Giving no offense in anything, that the ministry be not blamed. But in all things, approving ourselves as the ministers of God, in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. Oh, ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you, our heart is enlarged. Ye are not straightened in us, but ye are straightened in your own bowels. Now for a recompense in the same, I speak as unto my children, be ye also enlarged. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? Or what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Thus far the reading of God's inspired word from Second Corinthians chapter 6, a powerful persuasive argument by the apostle as to why the Corinthians should bring forth the fruit of the gospel ministry. Verses 1 through 10, there is an exhortation not to receive the ambassage of Paul in vain, and also a detail of his conduct as an ambassador, which commended his ministry for Christ among them and among all. In other words, Paul's saying, I have shown you how not to receive the grace of God in vain. He tells them, do not receive the grace of God in vain. Now, grace in the New Testament sometimes refers to the spiritual graces themselves. 
Are you justified? Are you sanctified? Are you adopted? Those are graces of God. Sometimes for the signs of grace, that is the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's table, those are graces of God or signs of his grace. And sometimes of the means of grace. Now think back to chapter 5. What was the end of chapter 5 about? It was about how Paul was an ambassador on behalf of God, speaking in Christ's stead that they be reconciled to God based off of the imputation of our sin to Christ and the imputation of his righteousness to us. And therefore, that grace of ambassadorship that I have spoken to you, the words of God, he says, do not receive that grace in vain. Bring forth the fruit. Now is an accepted time I have labored together with God and shown you that this is the time of salvation and therefore receive the grace of God, not in vain, not to no purpose, not without fruit in your life. Paul then brings forth his own example, verse 3, giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed. I don't want Christ on whose behalf I minister, to be blamed because I don't bring forth fruit and you don't bring forth fruit for the glory of him. An offense here is an occasion for making a misstep, a cause of stumbling, a hindrance, a reason to fall. Figuratively, it's used for an opportunity or reason to do wrong. That's the idea. We'll look at a stumbling block later. In the days of Josiah, they had a great reformation, but guess what was left? Stumbling blocks of the wicked remained behind. And so here he says, I leave none of those things, giving no offense, making no stumbling point. They edified not merely with their words, but also with their deeds. They built up the people of God and gave honor to the ministry. He did not want the ministry to be blamed or found fault with, criticized or censured. He and Timothy served Christ in such a way as to engage and strive lawfully, as he says elsewhere. He ran the race according to the rules, in other words. Approving ourselves as the ministers of God. This word approving You'll recall from Romans chapter 4, God commendeth his love toward us. He approved it. That's what he's doing here. He says, I want to commend myself to you. I want to offer myself for your approval to recommend myself. I preach certain doctrines. My life is intended to recommend those doctrines to you. I note then that the Christian ministry, pastors, elders, deacons, and especially pastors, is to build up the body of Christ, not merely in words, but also in deeds. This is a very high bar. Pray then for this pastor and for all true pastors, that we would build up the body of Christ and repent when we tear it down by our actions. We build up with our words, we should build up with our actions as well. And this is also true For all who are in authority, we must be diligent to commend our good words and lessons with our good actions and deeds. We'll look at this also in Zephaniah chapter 1. The Westminster 
uh, annotations on the Bible say those who are magnates are also magnets. Those who are great ones also have the power to draw others toward their example. And so here Paul is a magnate. He's a great one in the church. He has the ministry of reconciliation. So he seeks to draw them along toward the good things that he teaches. He is seeking then to be an example of the believers as he commands Timothy to be. Pray for your pastor. Pray for all true pastors. Pray for fathers, for husbands, for mothers, for magistrates, for leaders that they may be magnets toward good. Paul then gives in verses 4 through 10 an extensive list of the manner in which he commended his ministry. Patience, afflictions, necessities, distresses. These afflictions are crushing trials. Patience means he didn't squeeze out from under the trial. He endured that trial. He was in compulsion or necessity forced by external circumstances straightened or in a narrow place and yet God still enabled him to go through. Paul is an example for us of the 100% ethic, not the 50-50 ethic. Well, if my circumstances are good, I'll do what's right. If my circumstances are bad, no. Paul says, I will do what is right and pleasing to my master in the worst of circumstances. Stripes, imprisonments, tumults, Do you remember when they lacerated his back at Philippi? Do you remember when they stoned him and left him for dead? What did he do? Well, I'm done with this. This is a hard job. I didn't sign up for this. No. He gets back up after he's left for dead and he was stoned. And what does he do? He goes back in and sees the disciples before he moves on. He's ready to do the work that God has called him to. Remember the tumult in Ephesus? They would have torn him to shreds if he went among them. But he was ready to go. The disciples had to constrain him and say, No, Paul, don't go. They'll kill you. In labors, in watchings, in fastings. These are labors that are difficult. Watchings is where you stay up in the watches of the night. You don't sleep. Fastings is where you deprive yourself of bodily good, your food and your drink. He imposed on himself, things were imposed upon him, but in all these, he commends the ministry. What else, Paul? By pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness. These are moral virtues. Pure and holy, devoted to God, not mixed with deceit or fraud or uncleanness. Knowledge, he knew what God had said. He knew the truth of God's word. Long-suffering, he was not easily provoked to anger by others. Kindness, he lacked that bitter edge. I've been wronged so many times. These people hounding me, chasing my steps. How am I supposed to minister to the gospel? I didn't care. He wasn't bitter about it. He trusted in God. He set his hope in him and he did his duty. That's what he did. And he's an example for us. This is how we commend the ministry. This is how Paul commended it. This is what God calls us to. This is what he calls the Corinthians to. This is what it means. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. 
by the Holy Ghost, he says, by love unfeigned. I'm filled with God's Holy Spirit, and that's what keeps me doing my duty. My love is not a mask. That's the idea of unfeigned. Without a mask on your face, pretending to love and smile, like the actors do, the hypocrites do. And then they take the mask off, and what do you see? I hate you. Paul didn't pretend to love the Corinthians. It was not hypocritical. It wasn't a mask of love. It wasn't words that he wrote to them. He actually cared for them. And he proved it by his deeds. By the armor of righteousness, he says, on the right hand and on the left, God had given him weapons of warfare and he was ready to use them on all sides, whether men honored him or dishonored him, verse 8. Whether they spoke well of him or whether they slandered him as a wicked do good or do no good, ne'er do well, as a false teacher. Here the apostle gives us what we call paradoxes. These are verbal contradictions. Some people honored Paul, some people dishonored him. What kind of enemies did he make? He made enemies that honored the gospel ministry. Yes, if all men speak well of you, what does Jesus say? Well done. No, woe unto you if all men speak well of you. Should they hate you because you're an evildoer or a jerk? No. They ought to hate you because of your fidelity to what God himself has said. And that's why they hated Paul. That's why they slandered Paul. That's why they dishonored him. That's why they said, he's a liar. He's a deceiver, verse 8. And yet he was true. Oh, that obscure apostle Paul, who, who knows him as unknown, yet well known? Look at him. Look at the horrible circumstances of his life. He's always getting stoned or beaten or imprisoned. He's chastened, but he's not dead. Look at him, always weeping. He can't even control that eye disease or the thorn in his side. He asked God to remove it. Did God remove it? No. God doesn't care about Paul. As sorrowful, he says, yet always rejoicing. Oh, that Paul, he's always begging for money from the churches. Sure, he didn't take anything from Corinth, but he goes to the Philippians to get his money. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing and yet possessing all things. How? How can you have nothing yet possess all things? Paul tells us he had learned to be what? Content. In all circumstances, Christ was there with him. He was faithful and had a good conscience doing his duty. And therefore, if you have a good conscience and you know Christ who is heir of all things, guess what? You are heir of all things. If you are sorrowful, how can you always rejoice? Charles Hodge says, The believer has more true joy in sorrow than the world can ever afford. The sense of the love of God, assurance of his support, confidence in future blessedness, and the persuasion that his present light affliction shall work out for him a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, mingle with his sorrow, and give the suffering child of God a peace which passeth all understanding. Am I an heir of eternal life? Do I have Christ here present with me? Is he suffering together with me? Are these filling up the sufferings of Christ? 
How can I be sorrowful? The sorrows are real. The sorrows are true. The pain you might feel is real. And yet, always rejoicing, I know that God is working an eternal weight of glory for me. What then is this temporary pain? A Christian's good conscience doesn't consist in his circumstances, but in the words, the thoughts, and the deeds he has in Christ, in his state of mind, not in the state of his environment. Paul's environment was bad, wasn't it? Prison cells, beatings, stripes, false accusations, ungrateful disciples, false teachers, and yet he's always rejoicing. Because even when he seemed to sorrow, he rejoiced. This is the state of our faith, the mental clarity, the sobriety of a Christian walking by faith and not by sight. Are my circumstances bad? Well, they might be. But does that mean that God has forsaken me? No. In fact, it might mean that God is working an eternal weight of glory for me, and therefore I may rejoice. Verses 11 through 18, we have a direct address to the Corinthians to reciprocate his affections and not join themselves to the false apostles, these priests of Belial. Notice there, he says in verse 11, O ye Corinthians, he's exclaiming something to them to get their attention. He says, Our mouth is open unto you. Our heart is enlarged. When your mouth is opened, you're rejoicing. You're speaking many words. And he spoke many words. Sometimes it even means to boast when your mouth is wide open. He spoke freely. He spoke openly. He had a lively affection down in his heart. It was large for them. But what was their heart like toward him? Straightened, he says, narrowed down, shriveled up, no affection for the apostle Paul, rather narrowed and squeezed and frozen and confined within. And he says, this ought not to be. You ought to pay me back in kind. My mouth is open wide. My heart is enlarged for you. And you're straightened, he says. You ought to pay me back this recompense. You ought to be enlarged. Pay me back the like affection, the like frankness, the like openness in your speech. One aggravation for a sin is when we do not repay kindness with kindness. Scriptures are very clear about this. Proverbs 17, 13. Whoso rewardeth evil for good, evil shall not depart from his house. What did the Corinthians render to Paul for the good of his affection for them? Straightened bowels, he says. Your affections are tight and cold and shriveled up. And therefore they were asking for judgment. God says to do good even when men do evil to you, doesn't he? Even when men revile and persecute and hate you. He says to do good to them. How much more if someone does good to you? You ought to do even more so, lest you bring judgment upon yourself. And so he tells them, pay me back in kind. Pay back my affection with your affection. Then verse 14, which you might say is often quoted out of context. 
Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What is he talking about in context? Well, he's talking about how he was hounded, falsely accused, and told by the Corinthians that these other teachers were better than you, Paul. They say you're a deceiver. They say you're a no good. They say you're persecuted and abandoned by God. They say we're justified by our works. They say without circumcision you cannot be saved. They say we have to observe the festivals. They say we have to be right with God by works rather than just by faith. These are the false apostles. He says, do not be unequally yoked with them. Don't pull together and plow with them because they're plowing straight path to hell. Do not join yourself with their false teachings, their prosperity gospel, their justification by works, their other gospel, which is not another, but they trouble you. They are not ambassadors for Christ. They don't believe your sins were imputed to him and that his righteousness was imputed to you. No, they believe that you must do something to inherit eternal life. What good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? That's the false apostle's gospel. Don't be unequally yoked together with them. They are unbelievers, he says. They are unrighteous. They pretend to be righteous. They pretend to honor the law. But by faith, Paul says, we establish the law, not by the works of man. It's by believing in Jesus Christ that obedience to the law is secured. They are in darkness, he says. What communion hath light with darkness? None. What does light do? Light casts out the darkness. Ephesians 5.11, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather what? Reprove them. Verse 15, What concord hath Christ with Belial? Those who teach another gospel, they have a different master. Heresy, therefore, is a species of heathenism. It is anti-Christian. It erodes the foundation. When we depart from the oracles of Christ delivered to us in Scripture, we have become, to that extent, heathens. Belial, he calls it. The Lord of the flies. Baal, Zebub, Belial, worthlessness, satanic wickedness, idolatry, and departure from the living God. That's what heresy is. That's what these false apostles taught. What part, he asks, hath he that believeth with an infidel? Now this part here is a chosen or a divided up share, a portion. As a division of a country, a region, or an an assigned portion such as a share, a destiny, or a part. Do you remember the part of Edom, his inheritance? The thing given to him. Then you had the Ammonites. Then you have Israel. They all have a part or an inheritance. We who believe, what is the thing that we inherit that unbelievers inherit as well? Nothing. We have nothing in common with them. We have no shared ownership of anything. We don't have the same father. We don't have the same goods. We don't have the same future. We may have the same past, but that's about it. What part do we have with unbelievers? The the, uh, sons of Aaron had no part. The Levites had no part among Israel and the Septuagint. 
of Numbers 18.20. No inheritance. What agreement, he asks. This is the idea of making a mutual covenant, an arrangement where you all come together and you say the same terms. We agree. This is our covenant. This is our agreement. Can we have that with people who are with idols, who worship this other God? We cannot. We cannot have a consent, a harmony, an agreement, a joint working arrangement. We cannot have this with those who are idolaters. Unbelievers bear a different yoke. They have a different moral standard. Remember he said, the righteous with the unrighteous? They have a different knowledge, light versus darkness. They have different masters, Christ versus Belial. They have a different inheritance and destiny and testament. They vote differently. They will have an agreement on one thing and will have an agreement on another. All these things are true, whether we're talking in marriage, whether we're talking in churches, whether we're talking in nations. We cannot agree with ungodly people on these things. And therefore, do not seek mutual concord and agreement with unbelievers, with heretics, with false teachers, with heathens. It is a fruitless project. You cannot accomplish this. God says it's impossible. So if we try, what will happen? We will fail. In fact, we will give away the very thing that the heathen does not have. It will come down to the lowest common denominator. You can read about the public schools early on in the 1800s. They're proposing them, and what do they say? What do the faithful Presbyterians say? Well, if we have a public school, you will require him who believes to give way to him who believes less. And him who believes less will have to give way to him who believes not at all. What do we share in common with idol temples, with unbelievers, with a different master? Nothing. And therefore, we must not seek communion together with them. Why? Verse 16, ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and will be their God and they shall be my people. Here's our nature. Here's our worship. Here's our destiny. Here's our testament. Here's our lot. Here's our part. Here's our inheritance. Here's our all. God promises to be our God. Wherefore, he says, because of that promise, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Be holy, be consecrated, be separate for God's purposes. Faith then produces love. Doctrine determines our duty. Promises are the grounds for God's precepts. Estrange and separate yourselves from them. Have no intimate conversation or communion with them, lest thereby you be induced to the imitation of their sins and participation of their punishment. Do we want their sins and their punishment? He says, separate yourself. Come out from among them. Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Wait, didn't you already receive me? Yes. But if you touch the unclean thing, is that what the children of the covenant do? The heirs of God's testament? Indulging in uncleanness, filthiness, ungodliness, impurity? Israel had laws of uncleanness, did they not? And as we pointed out when we read through that book of Leviticus, that glorious book 
God illustrates for them with stick figures, you might say. The moral principle of uncleanness illustrated with physical things. Don't touch this. Don't touch that. You come in contact with this. You have to be washed in this way. Why? Did he care about oxen and external things and the touching of a dead body? No. He's telling you, do not be yoked with unbelievers. Do not live a profane and unclean life. Do not devote yourself to ungodliness and wickedness in your thoughts, in your words, in your deeds, in your choices, in your friendships, in your marriages, in your businesses. Do not be unclean people. And there's the promise. If you don't, I will receive you. And I will be a father unto you. And ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Those who partake in Christ's benefits partake in the image of the family, don't they? You can watch a family walk in the door and you can say, oh, they're all related. Yeah, she kind of looks like mom. He looks like mom a little bit and a little bit like dad. You can see the family resemblance, can't you? That's what he's saying. If you want to be my children, if you want to be my sons and my daughters, what must you reflect? You must reflect my image. You must be like the father. And these heretics and these heathens and these idol worshipers and these false teachers who say, Paul's no true apostle. He's a liar. He is always getting punished and chastened by God. You can't believe a word that he says. They want the ministry to be blamed. These are not to be heeded. These are not to be listened to. The prosperity preachers, the justification by works, the man at the center of the gospel. No, we must not take heed and we must not be yoked together with them. And thus far the explanation of God's holy word from 2 Corinthians chapter 6.